Let us pray. Our most gracious and holy Father, continually, we pray, draw near to us. Pour your spirit into our hearts to refresh our minds, that your word would be planted deep within, and that your word would grow and produce a crop of a hundredfold in our hearts and minds and lives, that we would be changed by that word and guided by that word to do all that you have called us to do. We ask these things all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm sure many of you have probably seen the um, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. At least a couple of them, maybe. These movies are about superheroes. They're about people who gain superpowers, or maybe they've always had superpowers, or they just are able to do amazing things even without superpowers, and they go out and save the world over and over and over again. It's a pretty easy-to-follow story there. It's a very repetitive story, but... Each person has a different kind of, each hero has a different personality, and so it gives some zest to life to watch these movies. As I've watched them more and more, one of my favorites is Thor, the god of thunder, you know, from Norse mythology, the god who controls lightning, who has the hammer named Mjolnir, who can call down lightning and can fly and all that. He comes from the another place. And he ends up on earth because he is prideful. Ultimately, his father sends him to earth to learn humility, to learn to quit doing everything for himself. Because that's Thor's one weakness. He's prideful. He's proud. I mean, he is strong. He is powerful. But he's hot-headed. He tends to let his belief in all of his abilities, his belief that he is absolutely right in pursuing the enemy, cloud right thinking and cloud right judgment, and it gets him in trouble. It creates problems. And so his father punishes him by sending him to earth, stripping him of all of his powers and leaving him to figure out his own path, to find humility so that he can one day lift the hammer of Mjolnir again. A little of that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's not an accident. It sounds familiar to us because it has a slight resemblance to what Paul says today about Jesus. You see, it says Jesus came to earth and became a human. That he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. But see, there's a huge difference here. Jesus didn't come to earth because he was prideful as a punishment from his father, like Thor did. Thor is an imperfect God who has to learn humility, who has to learn to put others before himself in order to become the example and the hero that he truly is intended to be. From the get-go, Jesus is already perfect because he is God himself, the second person of the Trinity who comes down to earth for the sake of his people, for the sake of the salvation of the world, he comes and sets aside his glory. He doesn't pursue his authority over all of creation in the same way, but lives as a human and walks through life moving toward the cross. 
He lives a life of humility, which is Paul's big idea in our passage here today. Looking at Christ and seeing his humility and encouraging us to be humble as well. But before you think that this is just a be like Christ sermon, then I'm just going to conclude this sermon and say, Jesus was humble, now you go be humble too. That's not the point Paul is actually making, I don't think. And so as we dig through this text, we're going to discover that Christ's humility isn't something we so much as imitate, but it's just simply something that is part of who we are now. And thus, because it's part of who we are, we can walk in that humility that Christ has. We will become humble, but we're not pursuing humility in order to look like Jesus. But we pursue humility because we are made to be like Jesus. We have been made into Jesus' people. And so it's appropriate for us to live lives of humility. And so beginning in verse 1, Paul starts, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. You see, he grounds this in Christ. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love, that is, love from God. Any participation in the Spirit, do you participate in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy, Paul then says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. You see, sometimes I get caught up and think about the Philippian church as being one of these really good churches of Paul's that didn't have problems in it, that didn't have infighting, that didn't have rivalries, that weren't fractious like Corinth was. We all love to think of Corinth when we think of the bad church, the church that just can't get it right. Which is good, because guess what? That's what the church is like today still. We're a lot like Corinth, but guess what? We're a lot like Philippi too. You see, later on in chapter 4, Paul's going to point out a couple of people to agree with one another, who are fighting, who are in competition with one another in the church. Usually, sometimes we see that and be like, oh, well, there, there were a couple of problems, but it wasn't that widespread. But yet here, Paul, I think, is making a huge point that there is some widespread division occurring within the church of Philippi. Look at what he wants them to do. He wants them to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Once again, he uses that same word, be of the same mind and have one mind. There's some division of thought here. There are some factions, factions within the church who want to do different things, who are putting their minds on different things, pursuing different goals for the church, and thus creating conflict, creating problems. But Paul reminds them that in Christ, we have an encouragement. We have comfort from love. We have a participation in the Spirit. We have affection and sympathy from God in Christ. We are put in Christ to receive those things, to have those things. And so Paul asks them to complete his joy by coming to a place of being of the same mind, of having the same love, God's love coming into you and going out to the rest of the people around you, to have love for one another, 
to be in full accord, to work together, to be on the same page, to be seeking the same goal as the people of God and to have, once more, one mind. To be thinking, not so much the same thoughts, but to have the same, again, full accord, to be focused on what their purpose is. And then Paul continues, Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. See, right here we come to the foundation of what Paul's getting at. Humility. That in order for us to love one another, in order for us to receive encouragement from our being in Christ, to participate in the Spirit, to have one mind, to be in full accord with the rest of the church, to have the same love from God for one another, we can't work from selfish ambition. We can't work from conceit. We can't think of ourselves as better than others. You see, that was Thor's problem in the movies, in the comic books. He thought of himself as better than others. He knew he could save people. He wanted to save people, but it wasn't out of a desire to serve. It was out of a desire to show off his abilities. He did everything from selfish ambition. But here Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That wonderful word, humility. Be humble. Pursue humility. It's a recurring theme in all of Paul's letters, in all parts of the Bible, this recurring thing of coming into humility. And humility isn't sitting there and beating yourself up. It's not saying, well, I'm a worthless, no good so-and-so. I'm less than an ant. That's not what humility is. Humility is having the right perspective of who you are. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, you are not the center of the universe. Jesus is. And if you're not the center, then others are probably closer to that center than you are. So put your place in the right, put yourself in the right place and see others as more important than you, more significant and more need. Look through new eyes that you have been given. Don't pursue selfish ambition because you are not perfect. You have been forgiven of all of your sins, as has everyone else who has come to faith in Jesus. They've received that forgiveness that Jesus has earned and purchased and redeemed for them through the cross. And so the path and the pathway of humility is open for you, for us all. And we can count others as more significant. We can look to others' needs. We can look to others' interests alongside ours because we've put our interests in their proper places. And now we can pursue and help others that we encounter, that we are in relation with, that we are serving through our vocations. We are enabled to do that. And so out of unity and humility, we can begin bringing Paul joy. The church in Philippi could begin bringing joy to Paul, but how do we get to that unity? How do we get to that humility? And that's how, what Paul tells us now in the next section of Philippians 2. Starting at verse 5, he starts off with saying, Have this mind among yourselves, one of unity and humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, this is something that has been given to you through Christ. And this 
is an interpretation, you might say, of what verse 5 actually says in the Greek. The Greek doesn't have a verb. It just says, yours in Christ Jesus. No, it doesn't even say yours. Um, <laughs> I just totally blanked on what it says in the Greek. I didn't write it down. But it lacks the verb. And so there's room for interpreting how to treat this, this little phrase. And so there's two ways to do it. We can follow how the ESV does, which puts in, which is, adds the is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or other translations will say something along the lines, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, versus have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Those lead you down two different paths of understanding what follows. To follow how some other translations put it, which is also which was also in Christ Jesus, is to turn this into an ethical statement that Paul now says, that he's calling us to be like Jesus. He's not describing what it is to be in Jesus, but he's telling us how to be like Jesus. He tells us to be like Jesus because he did this stuff, now you go do it too. But I don't think that's Paul's point here since he starts off this passage with encouragement in Christ. He puts our focus on being in Christ. He puts our focus on doing things in Christ, being changed, being transformed, being moved along by the Spirit in Christ. And so I think it makes sense when he comes to this place of saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It makes sense for it to be like that because this is about us being taken from being in ourselves on our own to being placed inside of Jesus and Jesus put in us. That we're put within his redemptive realm of salvation. We are united to him, brought together with him, bound up with him, such that what is Jesus's becomes ours and what was ours becomes Jesus's. And all that we had was sin and Jesus dealt with that at the cross, as Paul will point out. But what Jesus has is righteousness and humility and salvation. He has relation to the Father. And if he has that, then we have it being in Christ, being united to him. And so Paul goes on to describe who Jesus is in this particular case. He gives us a picture of Jesus, a perspective on Jesus in order to better understand how we can learn humility. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see here, Paul points out and says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, though he pre-existed all of creation because he is in the form of God, he is God himself, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't cling to that equality, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. See, when he says he emptied himself, he's not saying Jesus gave up his divinity. He's not saying he became merely an, a man here on earth. But because he didn't count his equality with God something to be held onto, to be grasped, to be clawed toward, he let go of that because his equality with God actually led him 
to become a man, led him to become incarnate. His equality with God means that he is God himself, that he is the second person of the Trinity and thus is a God of love, is a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of goodness. All of that leads God to become incarnate in Jesus Christ. His loving grace and compassion leads him to not cling to his authority, to cling to his ability to judge sin, but to take on the form of man to bring mercy by judging sin on himself. There is one who grasped that equality with God. Actually, there are many who have done that. But the first one was Adam. He grasped equality with God. He tried to be like God and know good and evil. He tried to become like God. He grasped at that equality. He clawed toward it. He made himself the center. And he lost everything for all of us. He lost relation to the Father. He lost his original righteousness. He lost his perfect nature. Human nature became bent and distorted by sin, becoming attached to it, marring it. And that carries down to all of us. But Jesus, instead of trying to grab hold of equality with God, emptied himself and let go of his authority and his glory and took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, being truly God and yet mysteriously truly man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' coming down and becoming human was all to lead toward the cross, to, be, to move forward in obedience toward the Father, to move forward in humility that comes out of that obedience, to die on the cross for us. In light of his dying there on the cross for us, what does God do? What does God the Father do? It says, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul here loosely quotes a passage from Isaiah 45, where it says that God, that Yahweh is the one God and every knee shall bow to Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't share his glory with any other. And yet here, Paul says that God exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God shares his glory with Jesus, which means Jesus is God. God shares his glory with himself, with the second person of the Trinity. Every knee bows at Jesus just as every knee will bow at Yahweh. Every knee will admit that Jesus is Lord. We tend to not always catch what Paul says right there. Jesus is Lord. What is the name that he is given that's above every name? Such that when, they, when people hear the name Jesus, they bow. And they cry out, Jesus is Lord. The name that is above every name is Yahweh. God's covenant name, the name that he revealed to Abraham and to his people in the Old Testament. And here, 
God bestows that name on Jesus so that all will bow down before Jesus. And they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Lord there, I think, underneath it in Greek is kurios, which is the Greek word used in the Greek Old Testament wherever Yahweh occurs. It's the name that the Greek translators of the Hebrew Bible chose to use in place of Yahweh. And so, when you see it, sometimes it's being used in that way. And I'm convinced that's what Paul is doing here, that he's using Lord as a stand-in for Yahweh. That when they say Jesus Christ is Lord, they're saying Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Permeating this entire passage is the reality that Jesus is God. It doesn't mean we have more than one God. It simply means we have a very complex God. One that we can't grasp and understand. A single God who has made himself known in three persons. Three co-equal persons who have existed from eternity past. It's not that God puts on a mask and says, well, one day I'm the Father, another day I'm Jesus. But from eternity past, he has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three co-equal divine persons who share one essence. And so thus, when the Son becomes incarnate, God himself has become incarnate for our sake. And so God, the Father, can share his glory that is only for God with Jesus because Jesus is God also. Paul demonstrates this just with his very language. He doesn't even have to argue it. He just simply makes the statement of he was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name above every name so that all would bow down and worship Jesus. So that God would share his glory with Jesus. See, we have been connected and united to Jesus, to that Savior, to that one who every knee shall bow and worship. That all in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. We've been united to that man, to that God, bound up with him such that that perfect humility that he showed becomes our perfect humility, transforming us to become the kind of people he wants us to be, transforming us into the type of people who can actually follow him, our hearts being renewed and us being called onto that path. Have this mind of unity and humility among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours. Even if you came in here thinking, I'm the most important person in this church, or you left work on Friday thinking, I'm the best person in this job, I'm the only one who's doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Even, with, even having that attitude, you still have this mind in you because you belong to Jesus, and you can turn to that life. Turn away and repent of selfishness, of conceit, of selfish ambition, and live in the humility that you've already been given in Jesus. All that you need has been given to you. And so we are called to receive it, to walk in it, to simply be who Jesus has made us to be because of who Jesus is. And so that's why Paul can now turn in verse 12 and give us our conclusion for our passage today. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only is in my presence, but much, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. See, those two parts go together. We can't just say work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have to include the for it is God who works in you so that we don't get confused. Paul can say work out your salvation with fear and trembling because we have been united to Christ and given that salvation. We've been given all the gifts that relate to our salvation. We've been given the new life that we are called to live and walk in. So Paul can say work it out almost in a sense of work it out of yourself into your daily life, into every aspect of your life, and do it with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God already at work in you, bringing it out, because he's given you his spirit. We can work because God is already working. We have strength because God has given us his strength. We have the ability to will because God has renewed our wills and given us a new will that can work for his good pleasure. Anything that we do is based solely out of what God has already done in us. It's yours in Christ already because you've been united to him. You've been transformed by him. You've been made into a new creation. So go out and walk in faith. Go out and live the life that God has called you into because he's given you the will to do that. He's given you the strength to work that. He's given you the salvation upon which that is all founded. Everything you do flows out of who Christ is now. When you follow God, you are following him because Jesus is bringing you along. Because you're walking in Christ, and Christ is walking in you, so to speak. We're perfectly united to Christ. Our eyes just simply have to be opened over and over and over again to that reality that we would continue in the path, in the place that God has given to us. Amen. So instead of like Thor being cast to earth and being stripped of all of his divinity as a god of thunder... Jesus willingly came to earth on our behalf, and he unites himself to us that we might become like him. As the old Greek fathers would say, God became man that my man might become God. God doesn't change our essential nature, but he lets us participate in his strength and his power, and that strength and power is humility and unity. For us, he gives us humility, he gives us unity as we turn to him as we repent of our old way of being and pursue the new way that he has given us day in and day out, moment by moment, renewing it in us because we are united to Christ and it is ours in Christ. And so may we pursue this new life. May we pursue this humility and unity with one another and with Jesus, knowing that he has given it to us, that we can walk this path that he has placed us on because he is with us and in us, and united to us, and given us all that we need to follow him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.